This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street and Fly Racing. Check out renthal.com for the Fit My Bike option and you'll be able to see all the different options you're able to have on your bike. And uh, David Emmett joining us as ever on the Paddock Pass podcast. He's a man that needs to do that for his uh, new BMW. But uh, David, Neil Morrison on the pod as well. We don't have Adam Wheeler on the pod this week. Adam's on his way back from uh, uh, Motocross of Nations. So he's on his way back from the US. But uh, we do have Adam dialing in on a couple of occasions just with his notes from the weekend. But it was a big weekend of action at Motegi. And uh, Neil, I want to come to you first because what was what was probably the toughest thing for you this weekend? Was it just having to remember a new name for a circuit for one thing? <laughs> uh, I mean, a 5 a.m. alarm, Steve, is always uh, something that I regard with the, uh, yeah, the kind of, well, what's the right phrase? Contempt. Contempt, exactly, yes, yes. So I would say the 5 a.m. alarm on Sunday was, was easily the toughest part of the weekend. And then, uh, yeah, I wasn't on comms duty, thankfully, so uh, you know, not really remembering the exact name of the uh, the, the mobility circuit resort, Mateki. Well, do you know what? I I came to you first on this because I thought it would be a little bit cruel to go to David Emmett <laughs> and ask him about mobility issues. But um, <laughs> David, how, how are you feeling now after uh, after your injuries? You back to full fitness? I am pretty well, as close to full fitness as I can. Yeah, I mean, it's, I am pretty close to full fitness. They're just a, a occasional the occasional twinge, but that's uh, that, that's completely different to two weeks ago where I was in uh, extreme pain. So no, looking looking pretty good, really. Uh, just one of one of the highlights of my weekend. Um, I was picking up a few bits and bobs uh, for the trip going away to Thailand tomorrow on Tuesday, and then I'll be away for a month. So I was picking up a few little clothing items before my trip, and uh, I was in quite a fashionable Japanese clothes store in the middle of Barcelona. And I have to say that what David is currently wearing now, there was a whole row of similar fluffy fleeces just like that. And I was thinking, wait a second, these guys really modeled this kind of entire fashion range on David Emmett. I mean, really, what is the world coming to? I know the pound is tanking, but it, what is the world coming to? I mean, uh, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in ahead of you, David, because this comes back to one of Neil's favorite films, American Psycho. <laughs> David Emmett, when did you become such a stylish motherfucker? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, like, considering I've been wearing sort of, you know, uh, um, grey and brown and green fleeces since uh, all probably the late 90s. Uh, I think that makes me one of the most fashionable piece in, uh, people on earth. I've always said it, Div, since I, since I very first met you. And it's, as long as you, you know, like, all you need to do is keep wearing the same clothes for uh, multiple decades, and at some point you'll be sort of at the very peak of fashion. And 10 years, you'll be at the very nadir of fashion, uh, but, you know, you just have to stick with it. Yeah, David, you're in that full-on Gramp and Simpson moment of when something moves from being <laughs> hip to scary. But uh, you're back in in, sta- in style, back in fashion. And uh, the good news is back on the podcast because we've got a lot to cover from the Mobility Resort um, Grand Prix of Japan. I don't know, it was the Motul <laughs> Grand Prix of Japan. Just because Adam's not here, we've got to still get, uh, get that in. But um, I want to come to you first, Neil, because what was your, your big moment of the weekend this was obviously a weekend where there's a lot of moments to pick from 
but we saw Jack Miller win the MotoGP race, Ayagura in the Moto2 class. We had uh, Izan Guevara take a big step towards the Moto3 World Championship. But for you, over the course of the weekend, what was the one thing that stood out? Uh, the one thing that stood out was probably the 4.55 alarm on Sunday morning, Steve. Uh, but aside from that, I think it has to be uh, Jack Miller's pass on both uh, Miguel Oliveira and Mark Marquez on the first lap of the MotoGP race. That was uh, just a, a great piece of overtaking from Jack. And um, I think it was at that moment where we thought, this guy is really in the mood here. Um, it's a tricky place, a tricky one of the trickiest points on the, the entire track. You see a lot of people running wide there, a lot of people losing the front. Um, but uh, Jack, I think, in three laps passed four riders at that point um, and went from seventh to first in basically uh, uh, yeah, the blinking of an eye. So, um, yeah, it was a, a particularly sweet move from Jack and, um, you know, it basically paved the way for him to go on and dominate the race post probably his most convincing MotoGP performance to date. Yeah, I think certainly his most convincing, especially when you look at Friday was really strong, then the wet qualifying on Saturday pushes him back down the order. And I thought there was one moment during the, the race to the front for Jack where Matt Bird on comms for, for the world feed said that's three fastest laps in a row for Jack. And from that point on, we didn't really see him again. But uh, Dave, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? I think my moment of the weekend was um, the warm-up lap for Alicia Spargaro when uh, they showed his onboard camera and he seemed to be grabbing his helmet. And uh, the first time he does that, you sort of think, is he trying to push his helmet on properly? But then his, his whole demeanor was really quite sort of a bit odd. Uh, and then we saw him pull into the pits uh, and have to start from pit lane. And it later transpired that uh, basically the, the electronics engineer, because while they're on the grids, they're connected to uh, an engineer's laptop. And because Mategi is such a an incredibly heavy um, uh, track for fuel consumption, and because they're not allowed to refuel on the grid, um, they put in a special uh, eco mode map, basically a fuel saving map, which doesn't allow them to go over, uh, I think, 100 kilometers an hour and 5,000 RPM just to use as little fuel as possible, um, uh, exiting the pits and going around to, uh, to, to line up on the grid. Um, but when they got back to the grid, then the electronics engineer forgot to swap the mode. The, the the maps back you know to take the the eco mode off and and put the uh you know the the, the race maps back in and so uh Alicia Spargaro, as soon as he as soon as he left the grid he realized you know he couldn't rev the bike that like he wanted to um sort of he, he knew at that moment that his race was lost and forgotten and uh sort of you you felt incredibly sorry for him because there was absolutely nothing you could he, he could do and he's such an expressive guy that it was um uh, when you see that you still think okay yeah no this is this is going horribly wrong yeah and um just when something like that happens Dave you obviously get brought back to Catalonia in the last lap for Aleish lost points there from his mistake this is the team making a mistake obviously it's always possible to have something happen through the course of a season crash as technical issues but these were two very much unforced human errors and 
they could prove very costly. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he, uh, to an extent, he was lucky that the Fabio Quattrara only managed to finish eighth and that Pekka Banyaya crashed out um, because, you know, he's still seven points behind Banyaya. Um, he didn't lose that many points. He only lost eight points to uh, uh, to Quattrara. Um, so he's still in uh, sort of in, in the hunt for the championship, but he, he did himself, or he did himself, the team did him absolutely no failure. Uh, phase. He was asked also, like, is this you know down to tiredness because these flyaways they are well we've you know we were at Aragon and then there's this rush out to Japan and it was a weird re- weekend at Japan anyway. Uh, we had the shortened uh, practice on Friday uh, and then you know completely rained off on Saturday. Um, uh, uh, apart from qualifying, we lost FP3. We had sort of a wet session in the morning, and then the uh, we lost the uh, the untimed uh, session of practice. And qualifying was delayed for over an hour, hour and a half, something like that. So there's all this weirdness going on, and you sort of think that 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 drains a lot of energy from everyone there, and it's exactly the kind of thing which can provoke errors. Um, but. Uh, Aspargaro said, look, this is our job. You know, we're, of course everyone's tired, but this is our job. You know, you, you, you have to do it. Um, you have to get it right. Yeah, because obviously enough, Neil wasn't the only one with a five o'clock alarm call. <laughs> Even whenever you're at the circuit as engineers, mechanics, they're rolling into the circuit very early doors as well. And it can happen where mistakes crop up. It's just very costly. And it could well be costly, Neil, as well, for third in the championship for Aleish because their points lost to Bastianini as well. Exactly. Although Bastianini didn't have a great race either, didn't have a great weekend. Um, inexperienced showed with two costly crashes at the end of Friday and qualifying on Saturday. Um, but um, I think Alish, obviously Davis End, fortunate in a way, but also he was looking at that race and thinking that he could have been up there and maybe fighting with Miller. Uh, he qualified ahead of Jack and he felt that um, with his preferred tyre option, um, he felt he could have run the same time as Jack. Um, so, yeah, massive missed opportunity for Aprilia. I said that we've got Adam on the pod dialing in as well. So let's hear from Adam on his moment of the weekend. Hi, guys. All right. I'm sorry I can't be with you on the pod, but I'm just traveling back from Chicago now and I've got some very nice music in the background of a shopping mall. Just stopped in to record these notes. Uh, Moment of the weekend for me, definitely Brad Binder's pass. Uh, Left it to the last moment to line it up. Um, He said that, you know, he judged it to perfection and it looked like it on the TV. Um, a fantastic move, you know, to equal his best result of the season. And um, I was a bit surprised, to be honest. I did think in the dry weather, uh, the KTMs would struggle more compared to the competitiveness they showed in the in the damp. But um, yeah, probably Binder's uh, best race of the year. Thanks, Adam. I'd imagine he um, looked ridiculous in the middle of a shopping centre recording that, but it's <laughs> much appreciated by us and uh, by all of our listeners. I think for me, my moment of the weekend is obviously keeping abreast of GP and Superbikes for the weekend. It was seeing Honda on pole in both World SBK and back in uh, MotoGP with Marquez. So for me to see Marquez come back on form, obviously it's a wet session, but this weekend showed just how strong Mark's going to be going forward. Didn't look to have any real impacts from all the injuries and the surgeries. He looked really competitive. So that was good to see. Iker Lekwona taking pole position for Honda in World Superbikes. That was the first time since Bury Ram in 2016 from a Honda on pole. So that was really good to see both of those things happening on the same day. And certainly for Honda, they'll hope that in both classes, it's that turn that they need to be able to really come back onto form. A question for you, Steve. Um, 
was this the first poll for the the new Honda CBR thousand RR since they redesigned it and stuck the wings on and did all uh, and did all the rest of it? Yeah, it was the first poll since then. It was Vandermark all the way back in sixteen. So that was whenever they did the facelifted fireblade that didn't really have anything different other than a fairing. So this is from that big change in bike. And uh, I think you're going to see quite a lot of other changes to that bike going forward. Obviously, for the, the World SBK podcast, we're going to be talking quite a bit about some of the concession parts, super concessions apparently being introduced as well by the FIM just to help push things forward for a couple of manufacturers. So we are going to see a lot more changes for Honda. You'll expect to see them at the front of the field a little bit more regularly now as well. Lequon in particular looks like he's doing a really good job. Xavi Vieira at the weekend and looked pretty solid, but uh, Lekwon is certainly the, the star man for them there. But uh, just to take it back to Motegi and MotoGP, Neil, I'm going to come to you straight away for your big talking point of the weekend. What was what was the the one thing that you look at and say, do you know what, this is what affected the weekend most? Well, um, I, I guess my talking point is more of a, a question that I would like to open up to both of you guys and maybe I could contribute to it as well. I was wanting to know, did Jack Miller win this race because he was the fastest guy at this track or was it the kind of circumstances that we saw through the weekend that impacted it? Obviously, strange circumstances we had. As Dave mentioned, we had a completely wet uh, Saturday. We had a truncated schedule as well because we were anticipating some freighting issues getting everything out from Aragon to Motegi in, what, four days. Um, there were unfounded fears in the end, but... Um, Basically, we had an hour and 15 minutes of dry track running on Friday, 20-minute uh, warm-up on Sunday, and that was basically the only preparation that we had. So it was um, it was strange in that you heard Brad Binder, who finished second, talking about the first 10 laps of the race, and he was still essentially coming to terms with the track because it was the first time he had been there on a MotoGP machine. I think 10 of the, the full-time members of the grid that were uh, at Mategi Racing um, on Sunday were rookies on MotoGP machinery there um, and Binder was saying the best thing that happened to him was actually following his teammate Miguel Oliveira in the first couple of laps because he got to see that his brake and markers weren't perfect in some places and he was maybe hitting the wrong lines in certain points of off the track so you had this weird situation where a lot of guys were not quite um, fully dialed in um, and it was only during the race maybe midpoint of the race where they started to feel okay this is how we ride this uh, part of the track Espargaro's issue as well. I think he could have maybe been up there fighting towards the front at some point on Sunday. Um, and then maybe you had, uh, you know, the kind of the pressure of the championship challengers affecting um, affecting Quadraro, Bagnaia, Bastianini. Um, but yes, I guess that is my, my kind of question. It was a strange weekend, but do you feel Jack won this on, on merit? Yeah, I think you couldn't take anything away from Jack. I think that the experience is certainly a factor as well. Motegi, you mentioned there, Neil, about riders having to figure out breaking zones, one corner leading into the next. Motegi's a really tricky track for that because you want to rush into so many corners. You want to break deep and hard into the corner, but it can put you offline for the flip-flop at the end of the lap if you're down into, into that 90-degree right-hander. There's a lot of corners like that where... It's so easy to make a small mistake that really is compounded for the next couple of corners. So having experience not only of the track on a MotoGP bike, but with the same bike can make a big difference. And I'm not 100% sure, but Miller would have been one of the few riders that also had experience using the shapeshifter there as well from his Pramac days. The only one. So maybe that's a little fact. There you go. So maybe that's a little factor as well, because it's such a... 
riders are used to it now, but Motegi's such a busy track that maybe this was a little bit of an advantage for him as well in, in that Friday morning session or Friday afternoon session, the, the free practice session. Uh, I'm uh, not sure I agree because I think uh, the bikes have changed so much. Uh, the race itself was 12 seconds faster than 2019. Miller was 31 seconds faster than he was in, t- in 2019. That's a massive, massive difference. Uh, there was a lot of riders who were, uh, who were considerably faster. I think Oliveira was 30 seconds faster. Uh, Alicia Spargo was 19 seconds faster despite losing nearly five seconds in the first lap. And being on the wrong rear tyre. Yeah, and being on the wrong rear tyre. Yeah, exactly. There's so much, um, uh, so much has changed. Um, I do think that the circumstances uh, contributed a lot. Uh, I don't think it contributed, it changed um, Miller's victory i think miller won this big miller was just you know he was so much better than everyone else um uh, even on friday you could see that he really had something uh, a little bit extra um uh, the biggest change i think was the the hard rear tire no one really had time to try the ride uh, the hard rear tire uh, a few people tried it on saturday morning warm-up saturday morning warm-up was also sunday. Qu- sorry sunday yeah sorry sunday warm-up yeah sunday warm-up was also a little bit later it was what 11 instead of uh, instead of 10 um and so the temperatures were a little bit high it actually made it worthwhile trying the it gave you a realistic idea of what what the hard was going to be like um there were riders who didn't try the uh, the the warm-up or sorry didn't try the hard tire uh, fabio quattro was one of them um and he regretted it he said it was definitely the wrong tire they it would have been better on the it was the safe option and he would have been better on the uh, on the hard rear i think uh, jorge martin would have uh, preferred the hard rear as well um but yeah i mean like in terms of victory definitely jack miller completely 100% deserved this i think it did penalize pekka banyaya because pekka banyaya has to work harder to get the ideal setup and once they find his setup he's um sort of uh it, it, almost like a throwback to valentino rossi where you know they'd find something on sunday morning and they're very much in that mode where they've got sort of you know a a ballpark setup which works really well but uh they find something through the weekend to give him that extra step, which has been uh, allowed him to to dominate. Whereas if you look at, say, Fabio Quattararo, Quattararo is pretty much, they are pretty much at the maximum of what that bike is capable. They know uh, all the ins and outs of it. They they completely understand it. And there's just nothing more for them to find on a weekend. Um, The only thing he could have found is a bit more, uh, um, uh, a bit more grip with the, with, with the hard rear tire. And also, they said they made a change on uh, uh, for the race, which didn't really work out for them. Didn't specify what. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I I don't think it affected the win. The fact that this was such a strange weekend, but I do think it affected the rest of the field, if you like. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you, Dave. And I would just like to clear up that uh, when I posited that question, it may have sounded as though I was uh, pouring some doubt. Uh, on the merit of Miller's victory, but I think um, that was absolutely uh, Miller's weekend in many respects. Maybe if we had normal circumstances, full free practice, dry on Sunday, sorry, dry on Saturday as well as Sunday and Friday, maybe we would have had more guys up towards the front. Maybe we would have had a closer race, but I think just the the kind of confidence that he showed early on um, was something we haven't really seen from uh, Jack um, through his time in in, in Ducati, um, there's been a couple of races where he has been, you know, the standout guy. But 
two of his victories have come in kind of wet conditions or rain affected races then obviously the Jerez triumph last year was a basically a consequence of Fabio Quattararo uh, suffering serious arm pump issues. Um, you know, this is the first time that he was head and shoulders above above the rest. Um, and I think it's been it's been coming really for some for some time now. We, we've kind of spoken quite a bit about the Barcelona test that came the day after um, that race weekend has been pivotal to Jack's season. Um, and since then, he has been fast more or less everywhere we've gone. Um, he had, what, four or three podiums in four races, uh, crashed out of the lead at Mizano, uh, pole position at Mizano as well. Um, so he has been in some really good form. And he was saying um, a few weeks ago that at that test in particular, um, what had happened specifically was in previous years, his base setting was so different to the other Ducati riders, the likes of Banyaya or Zarco. Um, and when they started working with the GP22, um, they kind of took his base setting from previous years and went in that direction. And when they got to Barcelona, they realized, well, I guess they knew before, but they looked at what Banyaya, Zarco, those guys were using. They thought that we're, we're so far away from them. Let's try what they've been doing. And essentially, they kind of went back in line with the other Ducati riders, or, you know, Banyaya. And um, that sort of gave him that sort of front stability, ability to break late. We know Jack's a, a seriously late breaker. Um, that has helped him um, kind of recover his form, recover his uh, his speed. Um, so, yeah, I think this has been coming. I think also the fact that, you know, his future is sorted. He knows he's got a two-year deal with KTM. Um, he's not in the championship running, so he can just sort of be be free in some respects. And I think that um, that was also a big contributor and has been a contributor to to his recent form. Big one coming up, obviously, two races from now, Phillip Island, you know, Jack will be thinking about getting himself into the best shape possible before that because he has to go to that weekend thinking he can maybe be fighting for another victory given that long front straight uh, on Phillip Island. You know, if Jack, if Jack can be in the podium running there, that would, you know, that would be the kind of cherry on the, on top of his time uh, at Ducati, like what a brilliant way to sign off that would be if he could have another victory there. Uh, it's a good job you did clear that up, Neil, because otherwise you would have probably been lynched on your as soon as you landed in Sydney <laughs> Airport when you uh, when you head over there. Um, uh, I think if it, there'd been uh, more of a normal weekend, I, I, because. Miller was just completely superior this weekend. I think what we would have seen is, is a different battle for second. Um, but I don't think we would have seen a, uh, I, I don't think anyone could have got close to Miller because he was just, he just hit the ground running. Yeah, I think for me, Jack's win reminded me of some of Crutchlow's wins in the past where for that one day, he was just unbeatable and it was a really good performance. And uh, yeah, I think it was great to see given the run of form he's been on, the work that's been done to try and find solutions. And now, like you said, Neil, he's found that form over the last few rounds. So that's exactly what you need to see as a factory rider. Absolutely. Um, I interviewed Jack a few weeks ago at Mizano and, uh, you know, he made some interesting comments. I know um, we might say that it's, I might think it's a cliche when, you know, you meet someone and you get engaged to them, that, that suddenly gives you a different perspective or whatever. But he was just explaining the difference that having um, a new partner, a fiance with him when he's living in Andorra has made. He said, you know, previously, if he had a bad result, he would go back to Andorra and he would stew in it for about 10 days. And he'd be sitting in his apartment by himself or his house thinking about it over and over and over again. And he said, now the fact that he's, you know, engaged, um, really happy with his with his partner, 
that just takes his mind off things. He's not sitting there agonizing over things that he's done wrong. It's kind of just freed him up a little bit and uh, allowed him to be, um, I guess, a little less tightly um, uh, wound up. So, you know, that is another, I think, factor that has kind of contributed to Jack and this this decent run that he's been on recently. Uh, that sort of um, makes me think of uh, 2015 for me to bring up that that sort of bombshell. Because if you think about what Valentino what happened in 2015, David? Uh, there was a there was some racing and Neil joined the paddock. Neil That's joined right, the paddock. Yeah. That was that was <laughs> that it. was that yeah, was the big yeah. thing. But you uh, you you saw at the end of that year that um, Valentino Rossi went home and really stewed on that whole on the way that that championship ended, and you wonder if that sort of negative energy ate away at him and and was partly to. Re, uh, I don't know. It sort of sucks the joy for uh, joy of racing out, uh, out from him because he he did seem like a different person after that. He, he really seemed a lot uh, angrier and more bitter. I mean, completely understandably. You know, he felt he felt that he'd been robbed, um, and so I can really understand why that you would feel that way. But uh, uh, perhaps that sort of being you know like going home and stewing on things is is what went wrong. And certainly you can see in the case of uh, you know Jack Miller, he really does. He he's so much more relaxed. Mention of the 2015 title fight tick. <laughs> Had to get it in div. <laughs> the Paddock Pass podcast hashtag Sapang Clash <laughs> uh, pod is uh, back there once again. Um, no, I have to say, Dave, it's interesting when you mention that about stewing on it at home because. I was talking to a few riders about their mental approach to things. And if you've made a mistake, do you criticize yourself? Do you think, like, oh, how did I give up that position? Or do you get angry? Or do you just try and forget about it and move on? And a lot of them said that the mindset for an elite athlete is that you actually just take the time to be frustrated because that's the best way to deal with it. And then when you move on, you move on and you forget about it. And it could be where... You know, you just you just have to show your frustrations for a minute. You look at someone like Aleish, how many times do you see him absolutely throwing stuff around the place, really frustrated, banging his, his helmet or, or this, that or the other. But then when he gets back to going back out on track, he's ready for it because he's got that frustration out of himself. And, you know, it's the, the mentality and knowing what you have to do that makes the difference for, you know, some riders stewing on it isn't a good thing. Others have to move on nice and quickly, but uh, it is a mindset thing that's always quite interesting to see how riders have to deal with things. But we've got, sorry, go on ahead, Dave. I was uh, going to say, so it's probably a bad idea for me to be uh, lying in bed worrying about uh, the things that are the, the wrong, saying the wrong thing back in 1983. That's why you have Rosha, Dave. Uh, no, you, <laughs> that's why you got Rosha. It's fine. There's no issue there, Dave. The God is this, you don't know the half of it of how true that is. Well, I was just going to say, we have to move on to important matters as well, because it's time for JB to roll some ads into the show. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. We got some of the important details out of the way there with an ad break, but we've got much more important things to talk about now as well. Because, Dave, let's come to you. What's your big talking point from the weekend? Um, really, the way that Ducati are handling this championship, the fact that uh, it was a fantastic week for, for, for Ducati. Um, they win the race, two riders on the podium, uh, but it was, you know, the wrong riders. Um, Pekka Banyaya finds a way to throw away eight points. Uh, and also, more importantly, to throw away the momentum that he had, uh, you know, coming off the back of four wins and a second place. Um, uh, Anaya Bastianini sort of scores a, a, scores a point, but loses out a little bit. Um, the it it really feels like Ducati are desperate to win a, a a riders championship. I mean, we talked about this on the last pod that um, you could really see by the reaction of uh, David Tardozzi to the, the fact that Ducati had just wrapped up the uh, you know the manufacturers championship at, uh, at Aragon. You know, you could you could see that. They, it doesn't matter. I mean, yes, it's nice. You know, it's one of those things which is really nice if you can manage it. But the the thing that really, really matters is the riders' championship. Uh, and yet, Ducati keep on finding a way to not win the riders' championship. Um, they've had a little bit of bad luck because also they've been up against you know, like they once they lost Casey Stoner, um, they were on up against Casey Stoner on a Honda, and then you know Jorge Lorenzo Valentino Rossi on a uh, on a Yamaha uh on a Ducati which wasn't very good and then they had a Ducati which was very good uh but Andrea Dovicioso was going up against uh Mark Marquez. Um they should have got it done in 2020 or 2021 but Fabio Quartararo was just phenomenal last year. Um the, the, the Yamaha is completely outclassed by the Ducati in every single respect this year. Uh, and yet they still can't do it. They still cannot win a championship. Um, the uh, Banyaya, it was a stupid mistake by Banyaya, the, the crash. Again, it was one of those things he said afterwards. I mean, he held his hand up. It was, he was very honest. It was really good. You know, like the, 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 the thing that he said was it, it was an idiotic maneuver. Um, but he was, he was thinking on that last lap to, uh, not only about passing Quattararo, which would have, you know, sort of cut the gap by two points. Um, but also try, he was then sort of thinking about, okay, right, if I get past Quattrara, maybe I can have a go at Vinales. And that to me was a, you've got to focus on the job in hand. You're, you're so on the limit at every single moment. You can't be thinking sort of two, two or three things ahead. You know, you can't be thinking about passing Vinales when you're not yet past Quattrara. First, you have to get past Quattrara. And I think it was a lapse of concentration. Um, it threw away a lot of points and it just seems that Ducati are, doomed i think perhaps it's also because we've got eight bikes on the grid you know like they've got eight bikes on the grid they've got so many really strong riders you know zarco uh, martin miller um even luca marini is starting to come really really good bezecchi is it is it, looking fantastic but that can be a disadvantage because um you're not focusing all of your efforts on just one person and putting the pressure on that uh, uh, on that one rider because and, and that's where they seem to be coming up short it was interesting when Pekka was talking about what you just mentioned there, Dave, about wanting to try and overtake uh, Vinales as well. You almost wonder the fact that he was thinking too far ahead meant that 
the job at hand, which was beating Quartararo, just maybe didn't take the, the precedence that it needed at that point in the race. And you think back to his crashes in Germany, you think back to his crash in Le Mans. That was when he had just been passed by a faster rider and he was settling into a rhythm and thinking about, okay, I'm going to follow this guy and then attack later on. Um, and again, maybe just the focus wasn't absolutely what it needed to be at that moment, at that corner where he eventually crashed out. Um, so you have to look at this as a, as a real weakness. I mean, Peko has been so, so good uh, in the second half of the season. The the four-race winning run was was brilliant. And at that point, I was really thinking, this guy doesn't really have many flaws. But I think what we did see in Mutegi were a couple of his weaknesses on show. You mentioned it earlier, Dave, how it does take him just, it takes him longer to get up to speed over a weekend. And I think, you know, that's understandable. He's 25 years old. This is what his fourth year in MotoGP. So he's still not the absolute finished article. But these are kind of things that Fabio Quartararo doesn't suffer from. And maybe that is related somewhat to the package that Fabio's on. But um, you can see from the very first session, Fabio is immediately on the pace. Mark Marquez is the same. It doesn't take him any time whatsoever to get up to speed. And Peko, it just takes a couple of sessions through the weekend. Um, and if that's disrupted, then it can be a real um, a real sticking point for him. And you do have to look at the, the races coming up and think, well, you know, yes, he does have experience in Thailand um, and Phillip Island on a MotoGP machine, but it hasn't been in three years. And those are two tracks that um, are notorious for having uh, intermittent weather conditions. Um, and, you know, perhaps those are, are two more occasions where he might suffer from a similar type of uh, a similar type of thing where he just comes to comes to the race and he isn't ready. He hasn't got his he hasn't got his setting dialed in. He hasn't got his feeling dialed in. And eventually that could be. I mean, if he has two more bad races, that could be the championship over by the time we get to Sepang. So, um Yes, it was uh, it was interesting. It was, I think it was a, a very revealing weekend um, because, as I said, two races ago, I thought this guy is unbeatable. He could win the rest of the races uh, all the way to Valencia. But um, but yeah, there was a few more little flaws that we we were made aware of in in Japan. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well, Neil. You mentioned about the experience he has at those tracks. He's got bad experience at those tracks as well. Whereas Fabio has had that good run of form at the end of twenty nineteen. Peko didn't have that. Peko was was struggling as a rookie. And I think it's one of those things that for Fabio, that's going to give him more momentum. The mistake, like you said, Dave, Peko holds his hands up and then sarcastically claps his way through the gravel trap, making fun of himself. And it'll be interesting to see how he deals with that going into the next couple of rounds. The championship is still in his hands. He's 18 points behind. If he wins the races, he wins the championship. But he needs to make sure that he's in a position to do that. And this was a, a situation, I always like the the American expression of uh, some people are playing checkers, some people are playing chess. He was trying to play chess and he needed to just play checkers. He needed to be simple and not think about anything other than is it worth the risk to try and overtake Paco? It wasn't, or sorry, to overtake Fabio. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. It certainly wasn't worth it to be thinking about Maverick at that stage as it is 18 points. It's a very much advantage Fabio now. Uh, yeah, the, after he crashed out at Saxon Ring, he said like he went home and sort of like thought about it for a couple of days and figured it out. I mean, we were talking about this earlier about, you know, needing time to sort of like figure it out. What he figured out was, you know, you just have to concentrate on the one thing. Don't concentrate on 
on too many things. And it really feels like uh, he just went, slipped back to that old mistake of thinking about too many things, thinking not just about trying to pass Fabio, but also trying to pass, um, uh, 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 trying to pass Maverick. And the other thing that he said was he didn't have any rear grip. So he couldn't actually use the advantage of the, uh, of the Ducati. He was really strong in braking, but he didn't have any rear grip. So he didn't have any drive grip. He didn't have any acceleration. So he, he wasn't making up any ground. Uh, out of corners, which is what he would have normally have done, make up uh, ground on corners, you know, so that you're arriving at a point where you can outbreak someone easily. He was just never close enough. I think uh, that was what his fifth DNF of the season. Um, four of those have been due to rider errors. He was taken out by Takanakigami in Barcelona. So that wasn't his fault. Um, and he scored a 15th place in the rain in Indonesia. And I think another thing that is quite critical this weekend is that he said this year he just has absolutely no confidence, no feeling whatsoever in the wet. And, um, I mean, that could be a real hindrance. I think you were saying when we did the notes show yesterday, Dave, uh, weather can be or weather could well be um, quite uh, quite shaky for Thailand this weekend. Um, and so Philip Island, be, I mean, you know, Philip, Philip, Island, Philip you know, Island is notorious for having fantastically stable weather throughout the weekends. Uh, and Malaysia you know. as well. Yeah, Malaysia as well. Yeah, absolutely. So these, the, you know, this could also be a thing. You know, we used to talk about Yamaha and, and Fabio having serious issues in the wet, and they're certainly not the most competitive package in wet conditions. But, I mean, Peko said on Saturday, um, had he not previously qualified for Q2 due to a fast time at the end of um, Friday's session, uh, he would have qualified probably in the back row of the grid. Like that's how slow he was. So um, another thing that I think could be a, a real limiting factor for his championship hopes in the weeks to come. Yeah, I think that's all. That's all very fair, and I think the big thing is going to be what Ducati decides to do as well. And uh, Dave, you've you've mentioned the Sepang Clash. You've now brought up Ducati and their inability to win World Championships. So that's two boxes ticked off. <laughs> I'm going to tick off the third box by uh, saying that my big talking points the weekend was that we got full on confirmation of just what we're going to get from Mark going forward. I've said a lot over the last few years that as it was with all the injuries, we were going to see it that Mark was just another rider for quite a lot of the time in a season. And then we'd go to Coda or Saxon Ring or places he's always been really strong and he'd still be Mark Marquez. I was wrong. The The surgery this year has solved the issues and uh, Mark is back to being Mark. Now, whether that's enough to win a world championship on a, on a Honda remains to be seen, but uh, Mark's the best we've ever seen and I'm not doubting him at all. Once he's got a functioning body, he's still the best in the world. Yeah, uh, the interesting thing was this was the first time that, uh, that he'd done more than about six or seven laps in a row. Uh, it, you know, the, the race, he wasn't sure what it was going to be like. And by the end, he said, look, sure, my arm was tired, but there was no pain. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't, there wasn't any, it wasn't hurting. It's just that he was lacking strength, um, which is also interesting because I think uh, if it was, I can't remember if it was Friday or Saturday that he said, you know, he'd been, uh, by the end of it, he was starting to put his, his arm into sort of the wrong positions again because he was just too tired to do it properly uh, and that was when his bone was starting to hurt again so his arm isn't completely healed but he I think he took so much confidence from from this um, that he's going to be really really yeah he's going to be really terrifying for the next uh, the, I mean, absolutely for next year, for next year, but also for the rest of the the, the rest of the season, he's going to be a factor. He's going to start to become uh, a factor up front uh, in the in the races because he, you know, 
he can race. He can, you know, last until the end of the race. And we've got some tracks coming up where, you know, Mark can be pretty darn good. Yeah, he's won the two races that we've had in Thailand so far. Um, he loves Phillip Island. He's had some of his best ever races at Phillip Island, certainly in 2015. We have to mention that again, don't we? That critical race um, in which he, uh, you know, basically tried to spoil the championship, the little the little so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, stealing by, by the, yeah spoiling the championship by taking five points from uh, Jorge Lorenzo by beating him, which is uh, um, a completely mysterious... Uh, but uh, he slowed uh, up the race at the front, Div. He slowed yeah, up the race at the front. That, that's you know? right, yeah. Like I say, it's all Andre Iannone's fault, but I, uh, but I won't go into it. Yeah, and then Valencia as well. I mean, he's just fantastic around Valencia. Um, obviously, Philip Island, Valencia, anti-clockwise circuits, which should be easier for him because he's obviously suffering with the uh, the upper right arm injury. Um, and I think it was a, a really um, it was a, a performance that he can take a lot from on Sunday because he passed Miguel Oliveira for fourth with a beautiful move. I think three laps from the flag. He was strong right at the end. Those guys were under severe pressure from Luca Marini, but he held on. And also he was uh, one of the few on the soft rear tyre. And I think we could say with some confidence that the hard rear tyre was the the tyre to go with. Um, obviously, the, the first two guys um, in the race went with that option. And Mark was still competitive up towards the end. So um, I think there's a, a huge amount of confidence he can take from this performance. From this weekend as a whole, he saw again how fast he was in um, in the rain. And I just think like the energy that he's showing um, must just be such a massive motivation to Honda. You know, he's just such a driving force. Um, obviously, he's nowhere near fully fit on the bike but the fact that he's back here taking risks, having the occasional crash, putting it all on the line, you know, that just must tell Honda that, right, we really have to raise our game to do what it takes to get this guy feeling comfortable and competitive again. And you think about the the funk that Honda was in when Mark was away. He said that he came and observed the, the factory box and the, the LCR box during uh, the Austrian and the San Marino GPs. And he just said everyone was just sick, basically sick of saying the same things same issues that they're having problems with and the fact that he's come back with this determination right we're building towards 2023 i mean it's just such a fresh energy in there now um and yeah as dave said i mean it's i don't think it's it's just ominous for 2023 i think it's actually ominous for the the last four races of this year i would not be surprised to see mark win by the end of the year uh, i think this is also the difference between um, this is also perhaps why Ducati can't win a championship because Pekka Benio is an incredibly talented rider. He's incredibly fast. Um, uh, he's a nice guy, but he doesn't have that same force of personality to lead a team. Uh, Mark is a leader. Mark is a born leader. I mean, like he leads his team. He leads Honda. He sets the direction. He sets the emotion in the uh, in the garage. Um, uh, Valentino Rossi was absolutely the same. He came in and he led his men, uh, uh, his men and women. You know, he 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 led his team into uh, into a win. Um, Lorenzo, even though Lorenzo's personality was very different to Valentino Rossi's, he was a very strong personality and led. Fabio Quartararo was the same. Fabio Quartararo, that, that trio of um, uh, Fabio, his crew chief and his data guy, and, uh, and Tom, his assistant, that is such a strong core that it gives Yamaha an incredible direction. You know, there, there, there's a real sense of leadership. And um, yeah, I mean... Like Marcus basically picked Honda up by the scruff of their neck and sort of thrown them into uh, into next year. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm 
really looking forward to next year because the Yamaha is going to be so much better and we're going to have, um, you know, we can have a, a fit, healthy and fast uh, Mark Marquez on a Honda, which will still be a bad bike, but it won't be as terrible as this year. <laughs> How much of a factor do you guys think it is then? Like when you look at the names you've mentioned there, Dave, whether it's Rossi, Marquez, Lorenzo, whoever you want to look at, Casey, you could put into that mix as well. They were all their own men as boys coming up through the ranks, whether it was in the European 125 Championship for Rossi or the Spanish Championship for the other guys. They came to the 125s or, or 250 Grand Prix class for Stoner as riders that had been earmarked as something special. They were guys that went in and they had that force of personality as 15-year-olds to really be the centre of attention. Marquez just generated that at KTM the instant he came there, really, it seemed. Then he has the Monloud team built around them for Moto2, goes to Repsol Honda, tries to bring his crew with him, is told, no, nah, they can't come this year, you have to use who we have. And, he, and he, he has the bravery to say, right, when I win the championship, you're bringing all my boys in. And he had that sense of purpose from a very early age. Pecco's been in the VR46 Academy, you're always overshadowed by Rossi even now it's still one of the things that's mentioned for all the VR46 guys that have either come through or are still part of that that you know they've got all the support they need they're out in Tavolia on the ranch every couple of days they're testing at Mizano but they're still doing all these with Rossi there's still that you know it's almost like the the parent overshadowing the child so you can look at you know a, a father and son racing duo we still talk about Wayne Gardner when, when Remy's been mentioned at times. That seems to be one of the things that the VR46 Academy gives you a head start, but it can also put you where you're, you've probably had a little bit too much handed to you in, in some ways. And that's a really good point. I do think that, um, if you like, almost the, the leader of the VR46 team is still Valentina Rossi, you know, and that can, that can be a bit of a disadvantage. And it's going to be really interesting to see an Ayo Bastianini in Ducati next year because he isn't part of the VR46 uh, entourage. He is very much his own person. And can he be that really strong leader uh, that can, you know, force a direction for Ducati and actually make a difference? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to be that leader now. We're moving on to the next topic, boys. <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be. Let's get to winners and losers right now. We're going to kick it off with Adam coming back in from the shopping centre over in Chicago. The winner for me has to be Fabio. Um, you know, he came out of what was a tough race with a, an increase in his championship lead and, of course, was a whisker away from being taken out, uh, I think, for, the, what, the third race in the second half of this season um, by Bagnaya. Um, you know, when Bagnaya was kind of rolling through the gravel and then picked himself up and started clapping rather sort of ironically his own mistake, uh, I think he was probably as well giving a, some praise to Fabio because he knows that was a major misstep in the championship. And I think uh, the Yamaha is only going to be competitive. I mean, Quattararo says he likes the... The track in Buriram, we know he's going to be fast at Sepang and also Phillip Island. So that was a big, big chance for Bagnaia just to at least stay in the hunt and he messed it up. So uh, even though I'm talking about Fabio as being the winner, uh, you know, Bagnaia also dropped the ball big time. So uh, again, Yamaha came out of that, I think, uh, you know, it was a tough weekend up to that point um, in the good. Two crashes for Aaron Kanet. He's my loser from uh, the Motul Grand Prix of Japan. 
uh, it was fairly obvious. I mean, he looked like being in a position where he would finally get that first win in Moto2 and it didn't go to plan. Uh, there was also the the story, Dave, which you put on your Twitter. Um, a colleague of ours, Melo Churkel, has got uh, something of a scoop, if you want to call it that, um, on the reason why Kanet's been wearing this bow tie and just how the perception of him wearing all this body ink uh, seems to be putting off some sponsors or teams, maybe from you know inquiring after his services. I mean, maybe it isn't just that. Maybe it's some of his sort of reckless actions in you know Moto3, uh, maybe just how Aaron is as a, a, a person as well, not just the, you know, superficial tattoos. But uh, it's it is a little sad if people are prejudging him. Um, but you know, Kanet, I think on the track showed that he still isn't quite the finished article. Um, undoubtedly very fast, but still to grab that first win, and he was in a great position to do it. Um, on the subjects of losers, I'd also like to offer a quick apology because on the last podcast last week, um, I was a little bit offensive to some of our colleagues over the whole Augusto Fernandez thing. Um, my point was merely I was trying to justify the actions of one of our photographer friends, Polarity Photo, uh, trying to get his work done. I mean, obviously, if you want to do something in confidence, don't do it in public. But I think there, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of an understanding between media colleagues about something that's being done for not that particular time anyway uh, just to close the book on it i was uh, probably a little bit too gobby so apologies i'm hoping to join you on the podcast next week thanks guys Thanks again, Adam. Some interesting ones there, Fabio Quattararo and uh, Aaron Cannot. And uh, I think for for Aaron, it's just such a shame. The bow tie is going to be gone, Neil. Are you going to be able to to deal with the disappointment of not having that grand reveal for the bow tie? Yeah, I was. I, I don't know if I am, Steve, to be honest, because that was something I'd been building myself up toward uh, for years now. I thought there was going to be some sort of, uh, I don't know, like a... a ticker tape shower um, <laughs> falling down upon park for me and uh, I don't know big letters spelling out uh, exactly what the meaning of it all was a, a glorious 3D, big reveal yeah, 3, 3D holograms and uh, the, the whole sort of you know like a uh, almost like, as well. yeah, yeah 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 obviously obviously brass band yes exactly um, probably helicopter um, <laughs> you know spelling something out in the sky as well or uh, yeah so skydivers yes. skydivers the whole thing sort of yeah that's right or each with a different letter I, on their uh, uh, on their parachute or or i was kind of i have to say there's there's a part of me that was really hoping that when the bow tie secret was revealed that crayfar wouldn't ask anything about it then in park <laughs> for me it would just be let's talk about the race but uh, as it was I've been disappointed. There was also part of me that was thinking, you know what, like, you know, Canada has obviously said that uh, MotoGP teams aren't that interested in him. There's a lot of teams in the Superbike paddock that are very interested in him. He's one of the riders that in 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 that paddock, a lot of people look at as being, do you know what, when we look at Dominic Aguilar or Locatelli, all these riders that come across, Canada's had so much success. He's a rider that really could make a big impact over in the, in the Superbike class. And I think it's going to be interesting to see which riders tend to make that transition in the next few years. Jorge Navarro looks like he's going to move over to Supersport next year. And he's he's just following that recent trend. But he can't get the job done, Steve. Why can't he get the job done? I mean, there's been six first-time winners in Moto2 this year, and he still isn't one of them. And he's had so many opportunities now. And he just, I mean, I, I just don't understand what happened in the race on Sunday. It was... Uh, 
he had like over a second and a half of advantage. He didn't need to be pushing that hard. And it was just another one of those uh, races like uh, we had in Kota earlier this year where he was the fastest guy. Take a deep breath. You've got a second and a half off track behind you to the next rider. Firmino Aldeguerra just crashed out a second. Take your time, mate. Relax, breathe. But yeah, uh, he, he, he can't get it over the line. And, you know, that's uh, it's a big feeling at the moment for him. That's because of the bow tie. I mean, the, 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 the problem was the bow tie. He had this whole thing about, I've got this whole thing. Once again, it's about thinking beyond the end of the race. He's not thinking about the race. He's thinking about, you know, like if I finally win this race, uh, then I'll be able to um, tell this story. Because it's quite, I mean, it, it's quite a sad and upsetting story. The fact that um, he's being discriminated against because of his full body tattoos. Like, you know, tattoos are not my thing, but his are actually really well done. It is a complete whole. And also, I love the fact that, you know, the way that it integrates with his helmet is seriously cool. Um, um, it, his tash, on the other hand, is an absolute crime and shouldn't be allowed. But that's uh, that, that's completely different. Uh, again, I think it's a class thing. I also think, uh, like, he's not being given a chance because of all these tattoos. Um, and I think he would fit in better. Better in the in the World Superbike uh, paddock because the World Superbike paddock is a little bit more working class. It's a little bit less middle class, and uh, I think it could be more of an asset to uh, he could be more of an asset to them. His his uh, his tattoos could be more of an asset because again it, it's it's a, a bit of um, something extra, a bit like Toprak and his and his stoppies. It gives it gives something extra. So yeah, I, I think it's a really great move. I think Kinet is an interesting one. When you speak to him in English, um, and I can totally relate to this, I, I don't think you get the the real uh, Aaron Kinet. Um, his English is obviously pretty good. It's passable. He can explain himself well, but you don't get any of the kind of humor that he shows when he's speaking in Spanish. Um, also, he's really sincere. Like, I mean, this is a guy that was talking to the Zone, the Spanish TV broadcaster recently about some of the um, eating disorder or traits of eating disorders that he was showing when he was in Model 3 because he was so obsessed with his weight and keeping his weight just on point so he could be competitive in that class. I mean, that's a very interesting, slightly worrying topic to be discussing. Um, and it is something that, let's face it, Model 3 riders think about a lot and maybe in some cases way too much. Um, and, you know, again, this is a good story. Like, I think it's, um, I, we were joking for a long time that it was going to be some crass or silly reason, but actually there was a, a decent story behind it. Um, but, you know, a shame that we had to hear about it after he had binned it out of the lead rather than uh, in part <laughs> for me with the, the ticket tape fallen and the, uh, you know, the banner being pulled across the sky by the plane that he'd hired. But he's going to win Thailand now. I mean, like basically, you know, he's 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 thrown that away. He's discarded it. He's forgotten about it. And now he can actually get on a race, and he'll, and you'll see, he'll win Thailand by about seventeen seconds. You mean Bo Thailand? But, oh, <laughs> Neil! Oh, Neil! Oh, Neil! Oh. I tell you what, you better use that in uh, one of your headlines for uh, after Thailand whenever he does win. But I, I will say one thing about Canada. Like, I would love to see him come to the Superbike paddock. Could be it could be twenty twenty four which coincidentally is also the same time when Andre Iannone is available for riding again. And certainly Iannone is going to be in play in the Superbike paddock if he wants to really? continue his riding career because, oh, how could you not? How could you not want him? Because he's, like he's going to be... Because he's but not he, been competing for over three years. Just about, he's he's incredibly. You're going to get one of the most talented riders yeah. in the world for absolute nothing. Like you offer him fifty grand a year and big bonuses, and you've got one of the best riders that Ducati staked their future on before Argentina and the clash with 
with Davi. So again, there's another thing we can tick off the list about uh, Ducati <laughs> intra-team battles. But um, it's been a very successful podcast in that regard for us. But I think it's one of those things that these riders are going to get opportunities to still race at the front, win a lot of races, be very competitive. That's what the Superbike Paddock is doing right now because there's too many good riders. There's too many riders getting disregarded very early in their careers because there's the next young guy coming through. And uh, Neil, that kind of brings us uh, pretty neatly to your big winner from the weekend, I think. <laughs> yes, uh, Igoro was my big winner from the weekend uh, where Kenneth failed, uh, Igoro succeeded. It wasn't looking too rosy for him on Saturday after he qualified down in 13th, but uh, a bit like Ethan Guevara in the Moto3 race, he just had a, a great start and really got stuck in. Um, was making overtakes left, right and centre in the first couple of laps. After Kinect crashed out, he was among the, the leading group and... Um, I thought it was just a, a brilliant ride because not only did he make that early comeback, but then when he hit the front, Augusto Fernandez, who was the fastest man at track, got into second. And there was a, just over a second between the pair of them. This is obviously the top two in the championship. This had huge, huge implications for the championship fight. And uh, Augusto put in a couple of fastest laps, but Agura just lowered his pace and matched them and did not put a foot wrong. So I thought it was a really composed uh, and aggressive ride from Agura. He's maybe not a guy you associate with being super aggressive, but I think he showed pretty much everything uh, in this uh, in this race. And of course, in front of his home fans as well, extra pressure there from both the, the home support from Honda. Um, and he kind of pulled this... Um, he pulled his performance out of the hat and the first Japanese winner on home soil since uh, his team boss, Hiroshi Yama, did so in 2006. Um, Honda bosses, Honda president was there watching. Um, I mean, yeah, talk about um, making yourself uh, the, the golden boy of the factory for, for future years with a performance like that. So yeah, Guru, I thought was uh, brilliant. And he's two points behind Augusto Fernandez in the championship now as well. So that's that's really tied up as well. It's the Moto2 uh, championship is really tight. Yeah, I was actually just going to say as well, I thought that from Augusto, it was actually a really good performance because he looked like he was absolutely nowhere and then he was just slowly able to pick his way through and managed to still come away with, with good points, hold on to the championship lead, move on to the next couple of rounds and see what comes from that. But I thought it was, again, like what we, we talked about after Aragon, it was a really interesting Moto2 race. But uh, Dave, what about you? Who was your big winner? Um, I, I think my big winner this weekend was Brad Binder because he showed... But he's such a good rider. He's just exceptional. And uh, there were a lot of riders giving him uh, sort of a lot of praise for what he's capable of doing. And if you, um, it, it's clear the KTM only works in certain circumstances. It, it, it's still a very flawed motorcycle. Um, uh, Miguel Oliveira had, had a good race as well, but it was genuinely uh, Brad Binder making the difference, getting the front row start, uh, and then coming through. Um, uh, you know, the, the the pass that he put on Martin at the end of the race uh, was just outstanding. Um, it really makes you wonder what he what he'd be capable of doing on a good bike. He's he's clearly I, I think he could be one of that elite group of Marquez um, and Guattararo. Um, I would probably put him maybe third uh, uh, to that group, and it'd be great to actually see him if he was on a really competitive bike. Like if I was Ducati. Uh, I, I would have signed him up a long time ago, but um, uh, you know he's he's there with KTM. Yeah, how he's sixth in the championship this year on that bike is uh, is remarkable and just testament to to Brad's talents. Um, just a guy that just puts absolutely everything into it. 
every time he's out on track. And obviously that has won the uh, the, the total admiration of uh, the KTM bosses. And, you know, I think he's one of those guys that could have a place for with them for life um, if he wanted it but um, you know it just depends on whether um, they can build a good enough bike for him uh, to go fast on next year and uh, in 2024 and again as we were saying before he's a leader he's a natural leader like he's in the garage with his uh, with his team uh, uh, when he comes into the team he you know uh, uh, shakes everyone's hand he says hello um, he leads that team he really leads that team so he's like when he has something positive to say he's always positive about the bike he has he criticizes the bike as well but because he leads that team, he can make those criticisms and, and get heard. Yeah, and I think it's one of those ones that when you look at how his last few years have progressed, I think the lessons that he learned from Io in the Moto2 class showed why he was a perfect rider for Io and why his brother Darren wasn't a perfect rider for Io. And I think it's it's always interesting to see how different teams take out the best in different riders and others it just doesn't quite work for them and uh, it certainly works for Binder with KTM but uh, for me my big winner from the weekend was the race winner in the Premier Class Jack Miller because it showed all the hard work that he's been able to put in over the last few years he's well rewarded for it obviously there's an expectation as the factory Ducati rider you're going to be winning a lot of races his job hasn't been to do that over the course of the second half of this year it's been to make progress and on a weekend like this where Bagnaya's had his struggles you've got to be in position to pick off the, the riders in front of you. Miller did that. When he dropped down to sixth on the, the second lap or the first lap, you're thinking, you know what, this is going to be really tough. He's got good riders in front of him. It's been a tough uh, tough qualifying session to be on the third row of the grid, but he just made his progress. And then once he hit the front, there was no one was going to get close to him. And I thought it was really impressive that he said afterwards it was the best race of his career it's very difficult to see how he could have had any race that was better than that. But for me, Jack Miller was my big winner. But uh, obviously we've heard from Adam about who his loser of the weekend was with Aaron Cannot. But Dave, what about you? Who was your loser? Uh, well, my loser is coming back to my um, uh, uh, my sort of you know talking main talking point. Really, I mean my my loser of this weekend are well losers are Gigi Delinia, uh, Davide Tardozzi, Paolo Cibatti. Um They've put together an organisation which is dominant. They have uh, created a bike which is the best in uh, on the grid. Um, they have the, the, the biggest collection of talent, uh, available to them. Uh, they've won so many races this year. They, they, they watch, you know, they had two bikes on the podium. Uh, they had Jack Miller winning and yet they cannot win a, a riders championship. And this was yet another example of why they cannot win a championship. And it, you know, it, it Gigi Delini, I mean, I think we've all said this over the years. Gigi Delini was brought in to win a Riders' Championship and he hasn't done it yet. He just hasn't, he hasn't delivered, even though he has clearly built the best bike on the bit. I mean, there, there is, the, the, the Ducati is so much better than everyone at everything, you know, it, uh, and yet they cannot win a Riders' Championship. Neil, what about you? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Uh, well, uh, it's a name that's cropped up in this section quite often this year, Steve, but Franco Morbidelli for me is uh, the big loser. And I say that because, uh, Yes, he finished ahead of Cal Crutchlow in the race. He was 14th, Crutchlow was 15th. But actually, he was listening back to Cal's comments this morning, and um, he, had a, he had a pretty good weekend, if you look at it. He had um, a, a rubbish qualifying. Um, he had a warning, I think, light uh, on his dashboard uh, coming up to the grid, saying that his front tire pressure was too low. Um, then he forgot to engage his start 
to his whole shot device. So we got a pretty bad start, had to come through, and obviously the Yamaha is a difficult bike to overtake on. Um, every person, every rider he came up to um, uh, to pass, it took him three laps to overtake them. And once he got to Morbidelli or just behind Morbidelli, if you actually look at his rhythm, he was doing a rhythm at that point in the race that was similar to what Jack Miller was doing. Um, Crusoe said he had the pace pretty much to finish P8, which um, I think for a rider coming back from retirement for the second time is impressive. And why am I talking about Crusoe so much? Because this is only his second race this season on that bike. He had five tests, I think, before the Aragon race this year. And he is making Franco Bobadelli look a bit silly. Um, and I think that's that's worrying. There were signs of uh, Franco um, recovering his mojo and getting back on the pace. Austria, San Marino, but Aragon and Japan once again have shown that he's just he's, he's not he's not really there. Um, and if someone like Crutzlow is coming in, a guy who has recently had five six years experience with Honda, has been retired essentially for two years, with the exception of a couple of um, uh, substitute rides. Uh, obviously, he's a test rider now, so he, he's still on the bike occasionally. But if he's coming in and showing up a full-time rider, um, you know, apparently this is a bike that only one rider can ride. Well, you know, Crutzlow is showing that even though he's not very naturally suited to the Yamaha, he can still um, he can still maybe get top 10 finishes. And, and, and Morbidelli has not been capable of doing that all year. So, um, yeah, I have to say Franco again. Cal is, uh, it pains me to say it, but, you know, Cal's kind of showing him up. Uh, yeah. Also, Cal's got a completely destroyed shoulder, which um, uh, yeah, and, he, and he's still managing to do that. Uh, an interesting point. I so I uh, was talking earlier about comparing times from 2019 to 2020. Um, uh, Fabio Quartararo was just under three seconds faster than uh, than he was in 2019 uh, this year. Um, Morbidelli was two and a half seconds faster. So there's not. It, it's not as if um, Morbidelli has sort of gone backwards or anything. It's just that uh, you know he was uh, he, he was a long way off in 2019. He's a long way off in 2022 as well. Yeah, I think that's all fair enough. I think for me, my big loser for reasons we talked about earlier on was Elation Aprilia because this was an open goal for them this weekend, and instead now they're really up against it for the the championship. They're going to be looking over their shoulder for finishing third in the world as well with Bastianini. So for that reason, I've gone with Elation. We're going to take a quick break in the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back after the break, we're going to have a quick look ahead to the Thai Grand Prix. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We've got a couple of minutes left on the show just to look ahead to this weekend's Thai Grand Prix. And this is a nice, easy one for uh, me, Neil, because it's just the or Thai Grand Prix for the sponsor. So uh, <laughs> this wasn't one that was particularly difficult for me to manage. Even for the Paddock Pass podcast, Paddock Notes show during the course of the weekend, I'm sure we'll manage that all right. So if everyone checks out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast you'll be able to sign up for the notes so to get the full update from the weekend in thailand as it is we're just gonna be very quick at the end of today's show just to 
look at what we're expecting for it. And Neil, the weather, you've already mentioned it on the show earlier that uh, this could be one of the big factors this weekend. It could be, Steve. Yeah, I think uh, rain is forecast uh, right the way through the weekend. Um, so, you know, that could lead to a bit of a topsy-turvy grid like we saw at Mategi. Um, it could also disrupt the, the kind of working rhythms of, of certain riders. Um, so, yes, it's it's tough to know what to what to make of it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the runners that we, we saw strong at uh, at Mategi um, fast again this weekend. You know, the likes of um, Miller, maybe Marquez. Um, Fabio is a big question mark for me. I mean, you know, it's, it's that old adage, if he can qualify well, it could be great. Um, I think there should be more overtaken opportunities for him at Burram than there were at Mategi because at Mategi, most of the breaking markers were pretty much where... Uh, at the end of long straights, um, which start off with slow acceleration points, there are two very long straights. Well, I guess three start and finish straight as well. Three very long straights in, in Thailand with a um, lot of, uh, well, uh, low acceleration, um, uh, accelerating points basically leading on to them. Um, so you kind of feel that Fabio is going to have to, he's going to lose ground in the first half of the lap and then ride like absolute hell in the second part to try and make up ground. Maybe he can get close enough to whoever's ahead into the last corner to make a, an overtake there. So I think that's going to be interesting to see just how strong he is. Um, and um, yeah, the Aprilia as well. You have to imagine that the Aprilia will will be looking pretty good in that uh, you know final half lap. So I think it's uh, I think it's going to be really interesting, Steve. I think it's going to be pretty wide open. We've had two great, great MotoGP races the two times we've been at Burram. Hopefully we'll have another on Sunday. Yeah, I've always loved going to Burram as well. When we went for World Superbikes, I think I went there three times and I always thought it was quite cool. You, you land, you have to get to the other airport, get to the centre of Thailand, and uh, the weather conditions always play a factor, whether it's because of the heat, the humidity, the rain you can get this time of year. All those things are going to be a factor. Dave, is Mark Marquez going to be a factor? We've already talked about him and uh, how we expect him to win a race again this season. But uh, what about this weekend? I mean, on, on paper, this should be quite a difficult race for him because of the because there's a lot of hard braking into uh, right-hand corners, um, which is, you know, where he's weakest. But then, you know, that was the same for Mategi. So we should see he has won the last two races. It's going to be very interesting to see the state of the track um, because, you know, MotoGP hasn't been there for uh, whatever it is, three years. I have literally no idea how much action there's been on the track. That's likely the, the, the track will be very green. Michelin will be bringing um, slightly revised compounds. Uh, we also get the special tyre that we had in Austria as well, um, uh, which I think is also the one tyre which... Uh, the uh, the the Aprilias don't get on with, so that's going to be the, that's going to be difficult. It's the special carcass because of the because of the high speeds, uh, you know, like high speed, hard acceleration, lots of uh, lots of hard braking. Um, I think it's fairly heavy on fuel again, so again, that is not going to play into the uh, into the hands of the Ducati. That that's going to help make it a little bit easier for uh, for the Yamaha. But the Yamaha is really going to suffer in terms of acceleration and top speed. So. Um, it's going to be, I, I think it's going to be another one of these really mixed up races where it, 
it's going to be very hard to say very much about it unless we do get a lot of dry running. And looking at the weather forecast, it looks like there's going to be lots of uh, little bits of disruption and the rain, the race itself might be a wet race. And then um, uh, if it's a wet race, then it could be really bad news for Pekka Benyaya. Um, uh, and yeah, it's it, 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 genuinely, it's going to be very interesting. I think it, I don't think we can draw very many conclusions about it. Yeah, Bury Ram does traditionally get quite a bit of running with the Thai Superbike Championship, the Asia Road Racing Championship, but obviously with COVID, a lot of those were cancelled. So it will be interesting to see what state the track's in. It's also going to be very interesting for us to see what state Neil's in on Thursday <laughs> afternoon whenever he dials in for the Paddock Notes show. But we're excited to see how that is, Neil. I'm sure everyone's excited to listen to that as well. So like I said earlier, patreon.com forward slash podcast, and you can get yourself signed up for all the updates through the weekend. And uh, we'll obviously have Adam back on the show next week. And uh, make sure if you've got any questions ahead of this weekend, get them into at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter or at uh, Neil, David or Adam or myself and uh, you'll be able to get the full updates all the way through the weekend for what you need to know. Yeah, we'll even add a disclaimer to the podcast. What you see from my part in Thailand will not be pretty. <laughs> At least you've had a haircut. <laughs> that is going to be very important for the YouTube channel and uh, <laughs> you can check out on YouTube the Paddock Pass podcast after each MotoGP weekend we try and do a video podcast as well so check that out as well to be able to keep yourself up to date as it is from myself David, Neil Adam dialing in from a shopping centre in Chicago big thank you to everyone for listening to this show and a big thank you to Fly Racing and Rent All Street for supporting the podcast this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Clappity clap, 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 clap. That was a good clap. I like that. You two were in perfect time. (laughs) I'm sure that it didn't look it for either of you, but it was great from my side. (laughs)